I am Usnavi, and you probably never heard my name. Reports of my fame are greatly exaggerated, exacerbated by the fact that my syntax is highly complicated. Yes, I immigrated from the single greatest little place in the Caribbean, Dominican Republic. I love it, Jesus, I'm jealous of it. And beyond that, ever since my folks passed on, I haven't gone back. God damn, I gotta get on that. Is it strange to you that it's record store day and I didn't go shopping? No, because you bought a bunch of records yesterday. So. <laughs> I, I didn't want to be around a whole lot of other people. Like, it's it's great that it's record store day and that stores in, like, around the world are open. But I'm like, I don't really want to be in a line today, mm-hmm. you know. So instead, we're going to record. How about that? Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 263 of the Matinee Cast. It's a movie-loving podcast on my movie-loving website, thematinee.ca. Your home for cinematic passion and perspective. On today's episode, we're doing I Have Been Waiting to Do for a Long Time. A long time in this case, being over 15 months. It's not something wildly out of the ordinary or certainly nothing we haven't done before on this show. In fact, it's something quite simple. For the first time in over 15 months, my guest is here in the room with me. And I bet you're asking, how's he doing that? He's supposed to be social distancing. He still hasn't been fully vaccinated. Yes, those are all absolutely real and valid points. However, I am cheating protocols today because my guest has been riding out this entire global health crisis with me. She has been on more matinee cast episodes than anyone else, though she hasn't done a review episodes with me in a few years. Uh, she's my all-time favorite editor, and I'm lucky enough to be married to her. Lindsay Ragoni is here. How are you, Lindsay Ragoni? I'm here. <laughs> That's, I mean, where else would you be for the last 15 months if somebody's looking for you? You can say, I'm in studio today. Sorry, yeah. I, can't, I can't help you. On episode 263, we will be discussing In the Heights. We'll be flipping the record over to play the other side. But first, we need to learn more about Lindsay. This is Know Your Enemy. Oh, my mom is Dominican Cuban. My dad is from Chile and PR, which means I'm Chile Dominican. But I always say I'm from Queens. Lindsay first appeared on Matinee Cast Number 1, where we discussed an education and the fantastic Mr. Fox. We learned the first films she'd ever seen in a theater were both Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and Return of the Jedi. The last film she watched at the time was The Twilight Saga and New Moon. The worst film she'd ever seen... Wow. Yeah. <laughs> times change, eh? The worst film she'd ever seen is Watchmen. The unseen classic or essential is Ben-Hur, and the film she wished she'd made is Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Lindsay returned on episode 37, where she and my friends discussed Harry Potter and the Deathly Hollows Part 2. We learned the film that everybody else hates that she digs is Back to the Beach. The film everybody else likes that she doesn't, although now she's changed her mind, is 2001 A Space Odyssey. The last film to make her cry is The Iron Giant. In the movie of her life, she'd be played by Leslie Nope, and the film she was watching next was Rocky IV. Then you return on episode 141, we discussed Amy, the documentary about Amy Winehouse. We learned the film that made your love of film turn a corner is West Side Story. Your first date movie with me is Wings of Desire. Uh, Your sick day movies are uh, The Breakfast Club or the extended editions of Lord of the Rings. The last film to leave you speechless in a bad way was the unauthorized story behind the scenes version of Saved by the Bell. Oh, that was amazing. It was so terrible. And your epitaph would be... From Hedvig and the Angry Inch, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? No, but I love his work. So it's time for round four. Lindsay Rigoni, what is a film you really dig, but you never want to watch again? Okay, I had trouble with this because for me, that's a lot of films. Pretty much anything like, that's a bummer. 
I'm like, oh, wow, that was a great movie, but I'm I'm done. I never need to see it again. Right. But I'm going to pick something for a different reason. Okay. The film I really loved was The Usual Suspects. Mm. It's a film that a lot of us really loved. Mm-hmm. Can I watch that film again? I don't think I can, and I don't know that I want to. I was going to say, I'm usually pretty good about separating <laughs> the art from the artist, but maybe no, I'm not. not. In some cases, like, for example, I can still watch the Harry Potter films because I think that they're out of J.K. Rowling's hands at this point. I, you know me. I have never been able to watch a Woody Allen film since the day I've met you. Right. Except my only exception has been Midnight in Paris because he's nowhere to be found in right. it. Like, we don't see his face. But I loved Kevin Spacey as did you and most of the people we know. And I loved that movie, but can I just watch that movie now and not think like, Oh yeah, that guy's a real piece of shit. Right. I don't think I can. Right. So I feel like that's the one, that's a good example of one that I just don't think. I mean, I think I have to let it go. Well, it's interesting because where I thought you were going with that is along with the fact that that's a film starring Kevin Spacey. It's a film that's directed by Brian Singer. I didn't even remember that. Oh yeah. So, I mean, what you're describing to me is my relationship with Superman Returns. Now, I actually love that story a lot more than I did when I first saw it. As time went on, I actually kind of grew to appreciate the story. But now I'm like, this is a film starring one sex abuser made by another sex abuser. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, thanks for ruining my character, guys. Yeah. As time goes on, there's more and more films like that that I'm like, you know, if somebody wanted to discuss it critically, I would love to pull it apart and talk about bits and bobs that work, you know, usual suspects for sure. But I don't really want to throw it on again for kicks. No, and you you know, there, there'll be actors that I don't particularly like or I don't think they're talented. Yeah. I think they're, they get roles because they're famous. Yeah. I can still watch their films because you'll be like, why are you watching this? You hate that person. I'm like, yeah, but it's a great movie. Yeah, yeah. I can still watch it. I, I highly dislike this person for getting roles that could have gone to somebody more talented because yeah. I, you know, various reasons, just nepotism or I, you know, some people, they just are very, very attractive. And right. I feel like maybe that role could have gone to somebody more talented. I can still watch it because sometimes I just like the movie. It's a good yeah. movie. But so when it's, when it's a horrible movie. It's, yeah, it's, it's hard. Really it's really hard for me. I get it. What is a film that genuinely freaked you out? I'm cheating because it's not a movie. It's a miniseries. Okay, you are cheating, but go on. There are a lot of movies that scared me. Like, I, you know that when we saw, what, what was that movie that really freaked me out when we first got together? The Ring. The Ring. There's a scene with the horse. Yeah. I mean, I was very upset with you for taking me in that movie. Like, I genuinely had nightmares. Yeah. I'm not saying that. But the Haunting of Bly Manor. The one on Netflix from a year or two ago? Yes. Really? For some specific reasons. Okay. I, I feel like it kind of counts because a miniseries is different from a TV series. Like it's, uh, it's a, it has an ending. Like it's, it's not an ongoing, like when they, when they did another season, it was, a, it's kind of like American Horror Story. It's a new The story. lines between television and film are blurring more and more with the years, you know, like television has really upped its game from where it began to what it is now. Yes. Uh, so, so I, I see what you're saying. I don't entirely agree, but I see what you're okay. saying. Go on. This freaks me out more than anything has ever freaked me out in my entire life. I lost sleep for several months because of this. Because <laughs> more than usual, there and you're partly to blame because I would have been ignorant of this particular thing if it hadn't been for you. Okay. One of the characters in the film has sleep paralysis. Oh, okay. I here's a little story, a personal story for me. I was haunted until I was like early teens, 13, 14. I literally had a ghost watch me sleep at night, would walk into my room, lean over me, 
put its face in front of mine and just watch me. And I would just sit under the covers and wait for it to leave. And then once it left, then I could fall asleep. I have believed this my entire life and I've been fine with it because I don't live in that house anymore. So I'm safe. I'm not, I was haunted and now I'm not haunted. Right. Gotcha. A few years ago, Ryan here watches a movie about sleep paralysis. He comes home. He's like, Oh my God, remember all the stories you told me about ghosts that you were haunted. Turns out it's a, like a condition called sleep paralysis and the people who have it describe exactly what you describe a shadowy figure watching them sleep that kind of freaked me out but i did not watch the documentary you were referring to because i knew it would trigger trigger some things things. back yeah because it was some things that i had blocked right i have not thought about it's a great documentary it's called the nightmare and i do highly recommend yeah i'm not gonna watch that to you but to anybody listening (laughs) so i sit down to watch haunting of bly manor (laughs) and there's a little girl in it who literally there's a there's this one shot she opens her eyes and there is hovering above her this woman and there's there's another scene where you see it from a different angle and you Mm -hmm. see this little girl like lying on a couch a foot away from her is this woman hovering over her right that triggered some memories that i had not remembered in years and the reason why it made me lose sleep it could have been real ghosts or it could have been her sleep paralysis the show is about ghosts. Right. So yeah. yes, there are ghosts. Okay. But people rationalize going, well, you have this sleep paralysis. You know it's not real. So for me, it triggers these memories where I start to think, oh my God, I always thought I was fine because I don't live in that haunted house anymore. <laughs> but if this is a condition, yeah. it is quite possible that when I'm lying in bed, I could open my eyes and see something. Yeah, well, yeah, yes. I could open my eyes any from this point in my life. I go to bed every night knowing I can open my eyes and there will be a ghost hovering over me watching me sleep. I would want to believe that if you've gone this long without that you're in the clear, that whatever you were working on is... I would hope so too, but um, I don't know. know. Yeah, but um, that, yeah. That show like like ruined my life for like a good six months because I couldn't sleep. It's, and it's, I, it's still to this day, I sometimes, like, I, you know, I have sleep problems. Yeah. I sometimes will lie there and not be sleeping and I'll want to open my eyes to look at the clock. But I every time I open my eyes, I do it in a way where I'm like, like, I open them, expect just to make sure, good, no ghost, no ghost. Now I can check my phone to see what time it is. What is a film that always makes you laugh? You know the answer to this. Do you want to tell people? I don't know what you're going to say. There's lots of films that always make me laugh. Yeah, me too. But there's one joke that always makes me laugh. Okay. I think it's the perfect joke, and I think it's the greatest joke that's ever been told in the history of cinema. Okay. And that is Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs Part 2. Right. When they say, could you just say it for me? (laughs) There's a leak in the boat. (laughs) And he holds up a little leak with a face on it, and the leak screams. That is... That's the perfect joke. What what is it about puns with you? I love puns. I think puns are genius. I can't pun to save my life. I've never been a pun. I can't pun. I think part of me is that my brain doesn't function in a way that, you know, some people can just like come up with puns off the top of their head. I cannot. When people, when I see like a stupid mug in, if we're shopping at like HomeSense or something, I remember one and it was like a picture of a bear with his arms out and it says like, I love you very much. And I was like peeing laughing in the aisles. I loved it so much. I love puns. So there's a leak in the boat and it's a sentient leak. (laughs) I think is the perfect joke. It's one line. It's like the, the setup, the joke and the punchline all in one. Is it, it that the, the leak then screams? It's just every. Like it's that, that's perfect. just the little chef's kiss on the top. It's a perfect joke. <laughs> it's a perfect joke. Hands down. Fight me on this if you don't no, agree funny. with me. I don't even remember what happens in Cloudy. It doesn't too. matter because I'm I'm more familiar with, with the cloudy, with cloudy with the right, okay. one. 
Um, there, I mean, there's lots of funny films that yeah. I love, but whenever I think of like something that makes me laugh, I, I have a lot of trouble see my, with my memory going past there's a leak in the boat. Right. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure there's lots because I, I watch a lot of comedies. Yeah. I laugh a lot. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, but it's, uh, you know. there's a leak in the boat is chef's kiss. Gotcha. It's perfect. All right. Uh, we could be here for a minute and uh, do try to keep your answer brief. What is your favorite movie soundtrack? I have one brief answer. I don't believe that. Dazed and Confused. Oh, wow. That is not where I thought you were going to go. Oh, where did you think I was going to go? You thought I was going to go with a musical film. Yeah. Um, I thought you were going to go with like Jesus Christ Superstar. I mean, I love Jesus Christ Superstar. And uh, to be honest, I love the, the, the soundtrack to the film of Jesus Christ Superstar more so than like, uh, like I've heard some more recent Broadway productions, but the film has the, the voices that I, when I hear those songs, those are the voices I want to hear. Yeah. I want to hear Carl Anderson. I want to hear Ted Neely. That is a, it's perfect. But dazed. So dazed was when I, when that movie came out, I three thereabouts. So I was, I was a teenager. Oh yeah. Back then it was hard to discover music on your own. You listen to what your friends listen to, what was on yes. the radio and what your parents listen so to. So the, the best way to learn about new music was film soundtracks. Like I went through when Crybaby came out, the, I had the soundtrack for that, which I also really love and had a lot of fifties music. And that led me to be like, Oh, I really like like fifties, like bop music. And then I bought like a compilation of fifties music. And then all of a sudden I was like into, you know, like this kind of old fashioned fifties rock. I, I remember uh, when reality bites came out, which also has an amazing soundtrack around the same time, around the same time. I, you hear a song that you'd like, and then you'd, you'd, you'd have to hunt down a CD from like that specific person. Right. So it was really hard to find new music. So I think Days though surprises me because it's all like 70s rock. And it's that was my Aerosmith, introduction to T 70s Purple, rock. Uh, you know, Alice Cooper, Ted Nugent, like those kinds of bands, Peter Frampton, Bob Dylan. But I don't like, I don't necessarily associate you with like some no, classic I rock. No, but I absolutely went through a phase where that's all I oh, listened to. Okay. Yeah. okay. I, I went through a phase because that was my introduction. That was my introduction. That movie was my introduction to a lot of those artists. Right. And I was like, oh my God, I love this music. So more so than that movie, I loved the soundtrack. I mean, I think the soundtrack is actually probably the most expensive part of that movie. Yeah. Because it's not like, you know, it, it, it's fine. It's, it's not like a bad movie or anything like that. But it's not exactly like complicated or handsome or anything like that. The cast is dirt cheap. Yeah. Because they're all young and new. And, and sometimes when I think of soundtracks, I, I don't think of musicals. Like for my top three soundtracks are probably Days of Confused, Dirty Dancing, and Reality Bites. So, uh, so again, like mixtapes. Mainly because when I was younger, it was the uh, movie soundtracks were the only way to introduce you to new music. Right. So I relied on them. It's like you now you can go on Spotify, you can click on one artist you like, and then it'll suggest a mixtape of stuff. Yeah, and it sends you a playlist every yeah, day. If you that want. was not our reality no. growing up. No, we no. so you kind of had to. The, whoever designed these movie soundtracks did a lot of work for you. Did you wear out your cassette? Oh yeah. That's that's one thing I think that is like I, I'm happy in one in one respect that that's gone that people wear out their copies like I do like that copies are a little bit more robust now or like the content is a little bit more accessible but yeah the, the whole idea that you had something that you basically played to death uh, last but not least and apparently you had some fun with this question what is a film you love but seemingly nobody else has heard of I have an easy answer because it's one of my favorite films of all time and it's my most logged film on letterboxd but the reason why i had fun on this is because i was like what i love a lot of a lot of stuff that i know aren't isn't popular but i'm like i went on letterboxd and just started clicking on films that i love that i didn't think were very popular and i 
love a lot of films that have been logged by under 50 people. <laughs> the one I'm going to pick, I don't know how you haven't guessed it because I watch it more than any other film. Stepping Out with Liza Minnelli has only been logged on Letterboxd by like 250 people. Really? And a lot of those people are people that I asked to watch the film. Okay. <laughs> like, it's one of the films that I, when I meet a new person and we talk about movies and I'm like, do you like Stepping Out? And they're like, I don't know that movie. And then inevitably, like a couple weeks later, I'll see they've logged it on Letterboxd. Sometimes they hate it. Yes. Often they don't like it. They're like, what is Lindsay's problem? But I love that movie. Tell people about this masterpiece. It is Liza Minnelli's last film role. Like a last really? star. She didn't make another film after stepping out. Wow. She, you know, came back into TV. Yeah. But it's a shame because she's great in the film. It's never been released on DVD or Blu-ray. Right. Um, well, I mean, that is, first of all, I think that's how a lot of people haven't seen it. Because, yeah. It's just not, it's just not out there. Yeah. So fun story for people. TCM aired this. This is probably everyone who's logged it saw it on TCM. I still have my VHS. Proudly displayed next to us right here on our bookcase which i'm surprised you didn't guess because it's like right there right i'm never getting rid of that the fact that it doesn't exist on digital media no do not get rid of that no. i'm surprised you've digitized that haven't you well okay so tcm aired it yeah. one time and i flipped out so i taped it and ryan was under threat of divorce like, this can never come off the pvr because it's so much easier than me hooking up the vhs player right. and putting this movie on and then we were moving and we were going to change from like Rogers to Bell, which means they take your PVR, like they take it away. Yeah. So I had to like give my, the box to a friend who managed to like digitize it off. And he even color corrected it. <laughs> and he was like, Oh, I noticed it was four by three. Hi, Jason. I noticed it was four by three. So I made you a, like I letterboxed it for you. And I, I did it shot by shot. And I was like, okay, I didn't know. Oh, great. Right. So I've seen since then I have seen it on, YouTube. I watched it on YouTube. I paid to watch it on YouTube, even though I have a digital copy that was made for me. And it is basically a VHS rip. Okay. The one that's on YouTube. What is this movie about? Okay. This movie is about an adult tap class. Right. It kind of takes place in one dance studio. The movie uh, extends it a little bit where you get to go to the theater because they do like the big show at the end. Right. But the cast is insane. Along with Liza Minnelli, you've got Jan Krakowski, Julie Walters. Um, Bill Irwin. Bill Irwin. Oh my God, Andrea Martin, Ellen Green. Oh my God, Shelley Winters. And it's just Liza teaching these misfits how to dance, how to how to tap dance, and right. through it they like develop friendships with each other and kind of come into their own. Sheila McCarthy, a Canadian actress, is in it. Yeah. Um, and it's so it's one of those movies, kind of like The Breakfast Club. Um, where I like watching it because it's just a bunch of people in a room talking. Yeah. And it's. It's just intimate and it's it's not complicated. It's this is a bunch of people in a tap class. Yeah, the movie this movie does like not so much as Breakfast Club. It does you get to leave the, the detention room every once in a while. Right. But it's kind of the a similar thing where it's people like learning about each other and and there's tap dancing and then there's a big musical number at the end which by the way is all filmed the last 20 minutes of this film was all filmed in it's all filmed in toronto yeah but the elgin theater where you and i have seen a lot of shows yeah and a lot of and a lot of films a lot TIFF. of films during yeah. tiff it's it's filmed there so from it's also got that nostalgia and on there's a it ends with their big number these misfits have all learned to tap dance and they're not the greatest in the world, but they do this tap number. Yeah. And then when you think the movie's over, Oh, wait a minute, we're going to show you a year later and show you 
another tap dance. <laughs> so it's just like the gift that keeps on giving. It's like the dawn of like the, the Marvel extra scene. But I never saw the movie when I was younger because I don't, I mean, one, that wasn't the kind of movie I was watching when I was young. And two, like you said, like it was gone in a week. So it's funny that it's a movie that has people in it that had a budget, uh, you know, that, that played for a minute or two, but a, just because it it's not exactly the kind of thing that transcends in pop culture, number one. And number two... It's not accessible. It's not accessible. Like, I don't know. It's a Paramount movie, and I don't know what happened with Paramount's licensing, but they just decided... I don't know if they don't want to pay for the music, or... Maybe, but I mean, the but music... But it's not even be, like it... It can't, can't be that be. expensive. No. Um, it's, it's just the nature of the beast that every time we adopt a new medium, whether it's from, you know analog to digital or digital to streaming, whatever, a lot of these movies just kind of vanish mm -hmm. because their rights are in flux. So it's, uh, I mean, that's a good and answer. And I'm, I, I am surprised I didn't think of that. I, I'm very careful about how often I log it in Letterboxd because I don't want to seem crazy. No, I, just log it. Log, I, log the hell out of but, it. So I've only logged it 25 times, but I it's, <laughs> only. it's definitely a lot more gotcha. than that. Well, there we go. That's a lot about Lindsay. Uh, you'll learn more whenever we get a full episode again. Um, I'm sure you'll probably uh, hear from her at the year end when we do a proper year end show this year, because I think we will. Um, for now, though, we've got a movie to talk about. We're probably going to be talking for a while, so we should move on. Um, In the Heights is our new slang on episode 263. We'll be right back to talk about it right after this. If I won the lotto tomorrow, well, I know I wouldn't bother going on no spending spree. I pick a business school and pay the entrance fee. And maybe if you're lucky, you'll stay friends with me. I'll be a businessman richer than Nina's daddy. Tiger Woods and I on the links, and he's my caddy. My money's making money. I'm going from po to modo. Keep the bling. I want the brass ring like Frodo. In the Heights is directed by John M. Chu. It's written by Kiara Allegra Hudis. Um, I hope I pronounced that correct. Based on her Broadway musical co-written with Lin-Manuel Miranda. It stars Anthony Ramos, Corey Hawkins, Leslie Grace, Melissa Barrera, Olga Marides, Daphne Rubin Vega, Jimmy Smits, and Lin-Manuel Miranda. The story is told through the eyes of Uznave, that's Ramos, a young man who runs a bodega but has dreams of returning to his family's homeland, the Dominican Republic, and reopening his father's old bar. Uznavi drifts through everyone's orbit, and I'm going to try and summarize this as quick as I can. There's Benny, his best friend who works at a car service run by Kevin Rosario. Rosario's daughter, Nina, happens to have just come back home from her first year at Stanford, BTW. Kevin is totally in love with her because they used to date, but he's still got a thing. Then there's Vanessa, who works in a nail salon run by Daniela, who usually has her squad of Carla and Kuka in tow. Vanessa dreams of being a fashion designer and is trying to get the scratch and the lease for a boutique of her own. BTW, Uznavi is totally in love with her. There's Sonny, Uznavi's young cousin, who always has his back and believes that people like those in his community deserve a lot more human rights than they are getting. Finally, watching over it all is Abuela Claudia, an older Cuban woman who never had her own children, so she pretty much adopted the whole block and became a matriarchal figure. Got it? Good. Moving on. We haven't really covered all that many musicals here on the Matinee cast. We've, we've covered shows that say have songs and smaller uh, film musicals like Begin Again and that kind of thing, but never a full adaptation of a Broadway production. Lindsay, for those who may not know and haven't already guessed, is the musical woman. When it comes to her, I always think of the quote from Shakespeare in Love. When you cannot find your wife, you better look for her at the playhouse. This woman eats, drinks, sleeps, and breathes musicals. So, pop quiz, hot shot. For you, 
what makes a great movie musical? For me... What does it have to do to succeed? The thing is, it doesn't have to do anything. I'm a believer that every movie is its own movie. So I don't like to have rules. This movie, for example, I love big ensemble. I love that. A great one is just a great one. It has to have a combination of great music, great great performances, great singers. I, I want good singers. I don't need famous people in a musical. I think that's what's been dragging down a lot of um, recent musicals. We have directors who don't have any faith in the musical as a genre. Right. And when they don't have faith in it, uh, not to name drop, but Hooper, um, who takes a franchise that already has a built-in audience, has great music, has a great story, and has no faith in that. So just has to fill it with a bunch of celebrities that are not the best people for the role okay. and aren't even good people for the world. So it sounds like for you what makes a great movie musical is is belief in the project from the create from the filmmakers. Yes. Okay. For me what makes a great movie musical to answer my own question um I actually brought this up on a show that's gone now. I was actually sad that it was gone. I found out it was gone when I was preparing for this episode. We, I used to do episodes of The Do-Over with Jamie Dew and we would look at years in Oscar history and reassess them and how they, how they went. And when we did the episode based on 2002, um, that was the year that Chicago won Best Picture and I had to talk about Chicago as a film. What I talked about with that, because I believe that is a good, that is oh, a it's a great, great film. I actually think Chicago the film is significantly better than Chicago the stage show. Yes. What makes a what makes that movie great, and what makes a movie musical great is it is a three ring circus. It's not just a film, and it's not just singing. It's the tumblers and the clowns and the lion tamer and yeah. the ringmaster all spinning their plates at the same time. So it is a, an absolute balancing act of music dance acting writing and editing photography editing and direction and it has to do it all at a high level like it's not enough just to say you've got an incredible singer mm-hmm. you know who just sings the doors off because that's just a great performance in a lackluster show that's the thing i think that there are a lot of really really good movie musicals but something fails the whole project, whether it's casting or direction or for something. me, when I watch Chicago, we get, cause I've watched it many, many times. Yeah. I don't think if, cause as an editor, if you gave me that footage, I don't think I would change a single cut mm-hmm. of that movie. I actually think that movie, I know people, well, some people complained when I won best editing, cause something else came out that year and I can't remember what it was. Um, probably the pianist or, or, or gangs of New York, something people, people get their knickers. in. But when I watch Chicago, I, I just, I'm like the timing yeah. and the, just the pace and knowing when to edit and when not to edit. I, I just think it's a perfectly cut film. And there's other musicals like um, cabaret yeah. is also a film where I, the editing in it is so spectacular. Mm-hmm. We will talk about editing, believe me, but um, this film, um, yes. well, I mean, I already know the answer to this question, but what'd you think? <laughs> I was fine. Right. Lies. So, I've already watched it twice, end to end. I've watched, they released the opening eight minutes early. I watched, I kept almost like preparing you because I didn't, you could hear it from the other room and I, I would, kept feeling like I had to tell you, oh, I'm just going to watch the first eight minutes again so you didn't just like hear me, overhear me playing it over and over and over again. Do you not recognize that I play some of the same songs every single day? Yes, no, I do. <laughs> I think this movie is beautiful. I love this film so much. We we were lucky to see an advanced screening of it several weeks ago. And I've been thinking about it ever since because all I wanted to do is rewatch it. Mm. I love it. 
this we talked about on the year end podcast uh, with Andrew Robinson. We didn't do a, a typical like top five type show. We kind of broke it down into things of like a film that summed up 2020, a film that we wish everybody else had seen. Um, and we had a section for the delayed 2020 film that we missed the most because all of the big projects last year, like everything from March onward, um, just got punted. Like the studios, they didn't believe in on-demand. They didn't know when they were going to get the theaters back. So they just, everything, like nine months worth of projects just got kicked into 2021. Um, and, and so we said, like, which one did you really miss? This was my choice for the, for the 2020 film. Like more than the Spielberg film, more than either of any of the Marvel films, this was a movie that I missed the most. And I still, in a way, miss it, air quotes, miss it. Because this was the one I really wanted to see in a theater. I really believed I needed to see this in a yeah. theater because it's 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 it, big. It's big and it's joyful yeah. and it's about community and you want to watch it in our theater community. You want to be surrounded by. I, there's no way we would have got to the end of that opening number in any theater at any screening at any time of day where people wouldn't have cheered. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They were there would have been like a buzz like in, yeah. the, in the crowd and and there are I believe there are like. If you look around on like Twitter and that kind of thing, you can actually find somebody like snuck into the back of the, the theater and like filmed the crowd when it was when it was playing. Yeah, this movie, it's amazing. I I wasn't sure. I mean, I was I was hopeful, I was optimistic. Um, I really wanted to like it and and to and to love it, but I wasn't sure if it was just gonna be the kind of project that falls into that Broadway basket. You know, like the 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 last 20 years have been littered with that kind of movie that falls into the Broadway basket where the theater going community loves the holy shit out of them, but they can't find a way to transcend. See, I was more confident in this one and I haven't been confident in a musical movie musical in a while. I do believe that for the last few years, we've been seeing big musicals made by people who don't understand or love them and treat them the way they were. And I was very confident that this film, because of the people that were behind it, I was confident that these are people who love musicals and understand them enough to be able to translate it to film. I don't know why I was so confident about this. I was very confident that this was going to be good. Well, it's, it's, it's one that you love. Like you came in. I love love the, I love the team and I had faith in the team. The way Lin-Manuel Miranda writes, if you, if you listen to the book of Hamilton, sure. like when you're watching Hamilton, he writes it. He writes like a film. Yeah. It's very different from other musicals where the adaptation is a little different translating from, and I know Hamilton, we don't have a film. We have like a pro shot, right. which I love by yes. the way. Um, but the, there's a lot of scenes where he, he writes edits. Yeah. So your obedient servant, it's an edited scene. Yeah. I can, I don't need a film to tell me what that film that's going to look like in a film. Okay. He's already written it like a film. Agreed. But I mean, this is, this is the difference between you and I and, and you know, your belief that it was going to succeed and my, you know, question as to whether or not it was going to exceed over the Broadway bucket is Lin-Manuel Miranda is immensely talented. Everybody involved with this film is immensely talented. Ramos, Chu, everybody. They're just, talented, talented, talented people. They've never done this before. They've never done a screen adaptation of one of their projects before. So Miranda's done two, has done two shows. The other one does not have a big screen adaptation yet. So it is possible to lose something in translation. Warner gave him a lot of confidence and I'm, I am fully on board that he can adapt. Like there were, they made a lot of adaptations that serve the movie better than they serve a show. And I wasn't sure if they were going to be precious or if they were going to say, you know what, we're not in a theater, we're on a screen, we have 
these tools available to us now. We need to do these things. I wasn't sure. Now I'm sure. I was confident as soon as I saw the cast. If they had released the cast and it was a bunch of pop stars, I would have been like, okay. That's no. more that, that's no. more to you than it is. Well, to no, the cast, and it's so. it's not it's not about the cast and it's not whether they're good. That t- that tells me a story of the people making this film. Mm-hmm. What film are they making? Are they making a vehicle for these pop stars? And they we just happen to have this show called In the Heights that would, you know, right. s- they would sound good at? Or are we making In the Heights? Yeah. Um, one thing that I'm excited about is I heard this director is, I don't know what state of rumor it is that he's in talks for the Wicked musical. He's been tapped. You mentioned the cast. What I do love about the movie, the, the cast in this movie, they have amazing chemistry. I don't just mean Ramos and Grace together, although they do have incredible chemistry together. The entire community, you get the sense that, like, if you told me that these people had been working together for years, I would totally believe you. And some of the older ones may have, like, Ruben Vega and Jimmy Smith may have done shows already by now. Like, you know, Ramos and Hawkins may have hung out. I have no idea. But the way they brought all these people together and the way they interact with each other, whether it's, you know, the the numbers that are out on the street or certainly like the smaller moments inside of Abuela's apartment or inside of that salon, they all have this rhythm together. That's just incredible. And I don't like, I don't know how they achieved it. I don't know whether they like, you know, set up like a, like a, a campus and hung out together for, for four weeks before everything started or what, but it's amazing what they got out of these people. Okay. So here's a comparison using West Side Story. I think West Side Story, first of all, is going to be the easy comparison for this movie. And I don't know if we're going to talk about it later or not, but yeah, we are. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's two films that take place within working class New York that take place, you know, they, they use working class people. In both movies, you have a scene that's set where the women are in a place of work. Mm-hmm. So if you, for instance, compare um, I Feel Pretty to, you know, Mino Diga, there's a huge difference between the way the girls relate in I Feel Pretty and the way the whole shop gets into it in Mino Diga between the customers and, and the staff. again, I think it's not just down to just that core cast. I think it's the way they, the way they, the, this film created a whole community. Yeah. It's not just, you didn't just take four girls no. and put it them in a room. It to like the background players. It, what you're saying. Yes. And that, that changes the whole dynamic Yeah, because it's, it's not, yeah, yeah. They had great chemistry, like the core cast, but it's actually not just about them. This, this whole film could be about anybody in that room. Right. And that's what I love about it. That's why it seems like they all have chemistry. Yeah. It's because everybody gets, everybody's involved. Mm-hmm. It's not just, you don't just have like the girls with curls in their hair, kind of just reading a magazine, doing their own thing. Everybody's in that room is aware of the conversations going on and they all react to the conversations yeah. and it creates a different dynamic. It's like, it feels real. Yeah. It yeah. brings it to life. It gives it life. Yeah. And it, it makes that, it, it makes the chemistry between the cast seem more, lively yeah because it's supposed to be a small community where a lot of people know a lot of other people mm-hmm. like it's the kind of community where everybody's kind of tightly packed um and, and that really comes through in the cast um you you sort of touched on it earlier um the sound of this movie the is, sound is incredible it's it's so beyond the fact that the actual songs are performed incredibly mixed incredibly uh scored just gloriously um that's all like this is uh, this is a soundtrack that I could foresee somebody saying in the future, this is their favorite film soundtrack. Um, 
the movie has a way of incorporating ambient sounds mm-hmm. into the sound in both character beats and musical beats. Like there's a moment where in what you would get in kind of like a drum roll swipe, a milk crate goes skidding across the floor yep. and it plays as like a drum roll. It's moments like that or like locks being swiped back and forth. That's an amazing touch. But even just when they're doing a big dance number and you can hear individual dancers being like, woo, or, yeah. you know, like, or just celebrating in yeah. the background or laughing or just those. And they've been mixed in kind of all over the place. Mm-hmm. And that that changes it. I like that it's not a clean soundtrack. Yeah. That's all from the studio. Mm-hmm. Um, it adds a lot of life to it. Like, yeah. You know, like whether or not it was captured ambiently probably wasn't or just the way it was mixed like probably not because that was a lot of dancers yes you can tell that this is something where the people creating it they really they're like we need to live in this we need to give this life we need to give this a special touch like it it can't just be a record it can't just seem like we just dropped the needle and everybody's singing and if they did that's still fine but but we have that already yeah i have that because i have a broadway (laughs) recording of this which i also listen to a lot i have a beautiful vinyl copy yeah it's nice and clean yeah but i have that exists yeah we're moving beyond the limitations of a stage. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I don't love the stage performance. Cause I obviously do. Yeah. Uh, I've only got to see this on stage once, which kind of sucks. I'm sure in the future now there'll be more productions, productions of it, right. which, which is something I love about these movie musicals. Cause I know there used to be a, a huge fear in producers that, Oh, if you make a movie or if you release a pro shot, nobody's going to want to see it. But the reality mm-hmm. is that's not true. It opens it up. Mm-hmm. Someone can fall in love with this and they've never heard of in the Heights before. And then in the Heights comes to tour. Maybe they, it never would have crossed their mind to go see it, but they love in the Heights now. Right. And yeah. they're going to want to spend the money to go see this live yeah. and experience it differently. Do you have a favorite number? It's between the opening and 96,000. It's real. like, I love the, the smaller songs too. It's just that the productions and the, I love the choreography in this film so much that it's hard for me to think of anything that doesn't have the big choreography in it. The way they brought the opening and 96,000 to life mm. is just some of the best examples of stage to screen that I've seen Yeah, where they did, they, it's still exciting. Like we just watched before we started recording, I made you watch the Tony performance of 96,000. It's great. It's exciting. But now they don't have to have 30 people on a stage. Yeah. Now they can, they can be in a pool and they can have all these other people and they can have action going on in the background. I, I love the way that these big musical numbers are produced and the choreography is so good. Both of those numbers are clearly informed by musical history. Like you can see, you know, again, take a drink, people. You can see West Side Story in them. You can see like Esther Williams numbers. Oh, yeah. Esther Williams numbers were all over 96,000. I love (laughs) that. I love Um, Esther Williams films. Would you take a guess as to what my favorite number is? Abuela's song? You got it. Okay. Paciencia y Fe. Yeah. That for me is the number where this film is extraordinary. Because that on the stage is a very subtle number. You know, there's a little bit of dance happening as she speaks that kind of brings to life what she is speaking of, of her past um, coming from Cuba to America. This movie takes that and turns it into elegant pageantry happening as she is dying and takes her journey from life into death. 
And she sings it so beautifully. She sings it so beautifully. Like the woman that they cast as Abuela is is wonderful. I hope that she gets some love out of this movie. I hope she gets an Oscar nomination out of this movie, even though it's only June. Um, she sings it so beautifully. She moves through these through the subway so beautifully, and it just it illustrates the the journey of life into death. Like along with the fact, you know, let's let's be honest, it ends with her walking through a tunnel into the light. Okay, that's a little on the nose. But in getting there, in in sending her into the subway, onto the car, along the platform, and through the tunnel, with these colors happening around her, with these people moving around her, with her interacting through it, and that idea that before you die, you have your life, you know, flashed before your eyes, it's done just so gloriously. And it, it, it amongst this movie, it is just nothing but jubilation and you know striving for your dreams and community and all of that you have this basically prayer this elegy in the middle of it i think that's extraordinary the movie did not have to do that the movie could have cut the bloody number Let's oh no they couldn't no, no, no. it's listen it's a two and a half hour movie and they did cut other things they could have cut it if they wanted to you know but the fact that they gave the the number this kind of care and attention to me is extraordinary the movie has an amazing elegance and touch to its VFX. Not just the staging. The stage, I mean, the stage, even in the staging, sometimes there's some cool visual effect work that's going on that really plays with it. Um, I mean, your favorite shot is clearly... Oh, is my clearly, favorite shot is... I think it's... I, I don't even think it's my favorite shot from this movie. It's my favorite shot of the decade. Okay. Or probably longer. I can't think of a shot I've loved more than and the shot. Lindsay's favorite shot in this movie is in, in the Heights... It's the During, shot. It's when the, he transitions to the line, yeah, I'm a streetlight choking on the heat. And he's looking out at his community and you see the cor- who are all dancing. He being Uznavi. Sorry, yeah. uh, Anthony Ramos. Yeah. Um, and you see the choreography in the reflection. Yeah. And it's, it focuses on him, but also his world. Yeah. From that point to the end of that number, yeah. I've rewound and rewound and rewound. And the beautiful thing about it is it's a trick. Like, it's not a practical shot. Not that that matters, right? I don't believe that something is inevitably better just because it was shot practically in camera on film. Screw you. Bullshit. Not you, Lindsay. Screw whoever thinks that that is the case. The dancers were shot on one. His window was shot on another. And they were composited together in a way that makes you believe that you are seeing it. The, the, the tip-off, in case anybody thinks that it's a practical shot, is that if the dancers were reflected, so too would the camera be. And there's no different angle. It's not like, you know, the mirrors in Citizen Kane, where the camera is just off angle enough to watch and watch. Well, we don't know how they No, it's that. not. It's a straight-on shot. It's incredible. It is gorgeous. It is composed within an inch of its life and has such a subtle touch to it that you don't even really think about it until it's pointed out. But it's, you would believe, if you were just walking, you would totally believe that that is a reflection of what's happening behind. That's that's what's great about it. It's the, the movie magic. Yeah. So there's that's the thing. Those kinds of shots are dotted throughout this movie, along with the kooky little VFX, like, you know, the, the illustrations when they start singing 96,000 or them dancing on the side of the building when we get late into the film when... Um, when Benny and Nina are dancing on the side of the building, like those are more obvious flourishes that the film decides to do. I believe this movie, again, really had a lot of care and attention to where do we get imaginative and where do we get playful and where do we find ways to heighten this with some of the tricks we've got in the toolbox. Okay, the time has come. Let us talk about the editing of this film. 
I don't even know what to say about the editing. It's perfect. Okay, well, I don't really know what to say about to the editing. To be fair, it's not like this is a film you've seen two times and change. It's not like a film like Moulin Rouge where you've had several watches to really study it with your editor's glasses on. Um, but like just going through the numbers, you know, like you've got Breathe, you've got Mino Diga. Well, I love that it's not literal. Like, for example, in Breathe, there's a moment where I think she's like back in her apartment and then she's back on the street again. It's it's not linear. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it is linear and sometimes it's not linear. But I like that there's freedom in the opening number when it's not just they're not just staying on dancing and the choreography you see you know a little girl in her house getting her hair done and she's yeah. squirming and then you see the guys at the barbershop and you see someone flip you know making breakfast and the the way they've cut this all together they're like this story is about everybody and it knows when to kind of hold back like i love old-fashioned things like when the, when benny and nina are dancing on the side of the building that's the kind of thing a lot of people don't take time for anymore the old-fashioned musicals mm-hmm. they they choreographed it in a way that you didn't need to keep cutting. Mm-hmm. So a lot of films now, like I'm going to, I don't want to sound like I'm bashing on them because I love them, but like the step up movies, sure. a lot of it feels like the editor really has a lot of control over the choreography. For example, they've just had a bunch of dancers in different places. And I've, I've gotten as an editor, I've gotten to do this myself where here's a bunch of people dancing and it's like, Ooh, what do I get to do with this? And you kind of get to like build choreography out of all these where uh, I know Gene Kelly famously didn't love editors. Right. He hated the medium of editing because he thought it ruined his choreography. But you didn't need to. There were, of course, there's editing, but you didn't need to do a lot because they choreographed the camera. Yeah. The camera was part of it. The camera yeah. was part of the dance. Yes. And so. And sometimes it still is. And sometimes it still is. But not a lot of people take the time to do this anymore. They just film it and they're like, well, we'll make it flashy in post. But to choreograph the camera and to have that part of the plan, like as an editor, I'm saying sometimes the lack of the edit is more beautiful. So now I'm going to challenge you because I have seen chatter out there in the internets that in some instances, this film is over edited, that it doesn't restrain itself to let a dance play out. You look at 96,000 as a, for instance, 96,000 is perfect. I, I agree. I, I totally agree, but I want you to speak to this as, as somebody who does edit and as somebody who loves this stuff too. It's more than we just let them dance and let the long take play because kind of like what I was saying with just because you caught a shot in camera on film does not necessarily make it a great shot. Just because you let a dance sequence play out in an unbroken take does not make it a great sequence. Well, it's, what's the story that you're trying to tell? This isn't the red shoes. This right. isn't the story about a dancer. Yes. And her body movements are telling the story. Yes. Um, the choreography in this is fantastic. Mm-hmm. It's choreographed in a way where the choreography is telling a story with the energy, but the editing is also part of it mm-hmm. because it's not about, um, if someone says it's cut too quickly, the, the thing is it's not about one person. Right. It's not about this one person expressing themselves through the body movements it's about everybody even though it is Usnavi's story it's not it is it's not Usnavi's story no it's he's it, not Usnavi is the narrative he's telling yeah. us the story but he's yeah. telling us everybody's story yeah his story is everybody's story yeah um so, so you need to cut around to benny to ninety-six thousand is about every single person in that pool you don't just want like one big white shot and just to hold it they're telling 200 stories at the same time but rhythmically it all it all works with the music it all makes it exciting so would you propose that just like the way gene kelly used to choreograph the camera 
a good editor is part of the choreography. Like a good editor yes. is serving the choreography of the number, even though they don't let a long take play. But even if something's cut in a film like this, sometimes, yeah, the editor gets a lot of freedom, but like a lot of times it's pre-decided. Like, like the, my favorite shot in the window and then it cuts to, like there's one glorious moment at the end of the opening number where we've had all these cuts of the community and all the dancers and then it comes up in this big wide shot over top and it zooms into the dancers and all of a sudden you're like, oh shit, Anthony Ramos is dancing. Right. You didn't even realize for a second that he had entered the the choreography. He was, you're just like, wow, he's, he's there. And it's because you're taken in by this whole community. Like you're like, oh yeah, it's everybody. And then you're like, oh, and he's, he's with us here and then it ends it pushes in and it ends on him yeah that was that shit was planned yeah like yeah yeah the editor was like they it was thought out it's not they didn't just walk out with a camera and shoot a bunch of stuff and they knew where this where this was taking yeah it's not a matter of an editor who doesn't respect the choreography the editor in this is fantastic yeah it's not any kind of question of attention deficit i it really is a way to raise the game of what's happening. Like, you know, you ask, why do we need to film this when it can just be performed on stage? Because you can do things that can't be done on the stage. The editor's name is Myra Karnstein, who did Crazy Rich Asians and Garden State, um, Nick and Nora. He's a talented editor. Like, everything that you've mentioned is is films that are really, really well executed. This is the film, like, come Oscar time, if this doesn't, to me, this is the, I, without having seen everything that's come out this year, I'm already like, right. oh, yeah, no, this is this is my Oscar, um, my Oscar nom. This movie is an elegy for working class people. Mm-hmm. The show is as well. But the movie, I really believe, you know, after the year we've just had, this is a movie we need after the year we've just had. Well, it's it's a couple things at once. One, it is a reminder of what neighborhoods and community and um, you know people are supposed are supposed to in normal times be about. You know, about getting together, about being outside, about connection, that kind of thing. But when I say it's an elegy for the working class, a lot of the people in this movie are not people who would have been working from home the last year. You know, these are the kinds of people who you still would have been buying your groceries from, who would have been delivering your food, who would have been driving your Ubers, um, in the case of some of them, wouldn't have even been working. Like, um, all the, the salon girls, the salon girls would have been screwed the last year, right? You get a scene, uh, midway through when Jimmy Smith says Kevin Rosario, his life moving through school and work and how and why, and now he runs this fleet of cars, you know, that was enough him and his wife to raise their daughter almost enough to send her off to university. Not really. He's got to like, I mean, it's heartbreaking when he sells the business. It is. But I mean, the thing is, is that a generation ago that was possible that a person could run a car, uh, uh, could run a fleet of cars and have enough to raise a family. Now it's really not, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a city like New York, in a city like in a large world-class city, you know, the working class, they're get, they're having it a harder and harder time. Well, even in the movie, the salon had to move. Yeah. They got priced out. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's the real tragedy of this movie is the fact that this whole neighborhood's probably completely changed. It, oh yeah. I'm sure it's know. gentrified. But that's, I think that's what I like about this movie is that in this moment, like in a, after a year where we have leaned so hard on the people who are, you know, who work really hard for shitty pay, for shitty treatment, um, we're realizing more and more that while a generation ago and the generation before that used to be enough to support yourself and your family, 
Now it's not. Whether you own your business and it's a small business or you are just somebody who works for that kind of business, this is a movie that wants to be for them and is a beautiful testament to that. Abuela talks about little details that tell the world that we are not invisible. This film is chock-a-block full of little details that you can tell there was a great deal of care that went into the staging of this film. Like, you mm-hmm. know, the shops, the apartments, the, the cars that you see, the clothes that they wear, everything, well, almost everything. There was one little thing that you and I picked about, like, that bothers me. And it's like, that bothers And I'm not even going to call attention to it now because I don't think it's fair. But I'm like, that bothers me because everything else has had so much attention paid to it. That's where you can see the influence of a team that really trusts and believes in their project when they want to go that far with the production, you know, in terms of the walls, the sets, the food, the music, all of it, it's none of that is by accident. And, you know, where you would normally kind of start to cheat it, where the camera just stops, they keep going. Are you curious to try a coffee with um, condensed milk? Yeah, I want coffee con leche. I mean, I take my coffee black, but, you know, I'm curious now. I really want to have that now. Um, I guess the one last thing I'll kind of touch on before we kind of start to wrap this up is there must have been a temptation here because it's an adaptation of a Tony Award winning production that has a soundtrack and is well known and all that jazz for the leads, especially to mimic the originals. Well, Anthony Ramos. I, I was lucky I got to see the original cast of Hamilton. So I've seen, I got, I have seen him live and he's great. And I think, I think he embodies this role perfectly. And it's not the, his first time playing the role. Right. He he's played this role before. I think he played it on tour and he played it, I think at the Kennedy center. Like to me, this is his role as much as it is Lynn's role. Oh yeah. I think, I mean, Lynn's a bit too old for it. Anyway, yes. But. I mean, it, it's, it's telling in this movie that Lynn is now the, uh, the, the Piragua guy. I don't think that that's a fa- I don't think that that's an accident. That's not just like a cute little cameo. That's him saying, "I know how old I am." But I I see Anthony Ramos in this role more than Lynn. Sure, he really made it his own. He took this role he and did. he was like, "This is my uh, role now." Now I can hear Lynn in his delivery, which is it's because Lynn wrote it though. Right, you're hearing his words. I am hearing his words, and I'm hearing his rhythm, and I'm hearing his 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 direction, his composition. I can hear because you know we've listened to Hamilton a trillion times over the last six years, I can hear Lynn's rhythms when, when it's somebody who's not Lynn is singing. I actually hear him as a little bit more hyper. We Just before we went on air here today, we watched a, the Tony performance of the opening in 96,000 where we heard Chris Jackson do his thing and Lin-Manuel Miranda do his thing along with everybody else. I remember watching that and thinking, man, these guys sound a step slow compared to Ramos and Hawkins and how they perform the number Hawkins as well every now and then when Hawkins is singing I'm like I can hear you doing Chris Jackson oh my god was he ever good yeah his voice can he just like sing me to sleep every night <laughs> his voice is so beautiful and I love when I saw I remember when I saw Hamilton live um Christopher Jackson was the person whose voice I mean he sounds great on the album and everything but being in a room with him singing like when he sang one last time I yeah. remember just being like wow like I had the same feeling that I had in the theater listening to Christopher Jackson right. 
sitting on my couch watching Hawkins. Like I had, he, he got to me the same way. His voice is just has that beautiful quality to it. So uh, like that's, I think that's what I love about the way that this cast has sung these songs and adapted these songs right down to the women. The women are doing the same thing too. We haven't really talked about them as much, but they're doing the same thing where they are, they are using the original performances as a springboard. And, you know, so you can hear them, singing those those incantations the same way that you would if you were covering your favorite song but still making them their own this this film we've got someone like daphne rubin vega yeah she's not think she does not have to think about singing no she has such a big personality and a big presence that when she yes she's singing and these the notes are coming out and she's singing on the stuff it never feels like an effort or it never feels the, the music is just kind of there. Mm-hmm. And so what you're watching, you never feel like you're watching her sit like singing. Like yeah. we're not watching her, tr- tr- you know, trying to get this right. What we're watching is her just essence blowing up all over the screen. Right. And so you don't have, it's, that's the difference. You don't think about it. It just, that's why it feels so natural. And it, it's like butter. Like when you, it just kind of goes down all the music. Like you don't ever think about it. Yeah. It's even though it's non, it's like, there's so much music on this. It's just so effortless. And it's because these performers, you don't have to ever think about them performing it. Yeah. I, I mean, I blame you. Cause if I hadn't, if I, if I hadn't heard this music before, I would have just taken Ramos and Hawkins performance as was. But I, because, I, I do take it as was. I know, yeah. No, that's what I'm saying. Because you've played this stuff for me so often. I'm like, I hear Lin-Manuel Miranda in this and I hear Chris Jackson in this. Whereas before I wouldn't even known, I certainly, I would have known who Miranda was. I probably wouldn't have known Chris Jackson by name. Chris Jackson, by the way, for eagle eyed people is in this movie as the Mr. Softy truck driver. Which brought me such joy. That I'm sure. And the, the inclusion of you'll be back as the whole music. Yes. I did like those little winks. Like and these also, kinds of things. I know Lin's parents make a cameo. Do they? When Nina, I think it's when Nina is um, singing breathe, which is on the actual Broadway soundtrack is like the probably the song I listen to the most. Okay. I love that song. And I think it's um oh, I can't remember who sings it on that album. Um and I, I loved it here, but I'm pretty sure when she's walking down the street and she's talking about like all oh, this community, I think Lynn's parents like are like, oh, like, welcome back, sweet. Nina, and they kind of wave at her. Mm-hmm. I think. Like I'm I'm that's pretty so sure, sweet. yeah, there's a little moment with Lynn's parents. We end every review here on the Matinee cast with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible. If you could take away from this movie and keep you would. There is a lot there's so much in this movie that if you could take away from it and keep you would. Lindsay Rigoni, what would be your souvenir from In the Heights? Either just that shot that I love, yeah, or Benny's riffs. <laughs> just, I just um, want to just yeah. just keep it with me all the time. I just want to hear that voice. Good answers. My souvenir is something incredibly basic, and I, it's just been in my head for like weeks now. I want a piragua. Oh God, yeah. You know, like Lin Manuel Miranda spends the, the entire movie pushing around this like icy cart. It's a shaved ice. It's, it's a shaved ice. ice with syrup on top. It's not complicated. You can get it anywhere. I mean, you know, you can make it at home. But there's something about, first of all, just the way that he sings about them, the old world nature of them, the fact that it's just a buck fifty. I bought us freezies the other day that were like double that. <laughs> you know, but yeah, I want I wanted to pay agua after watching this, and especially because he keeps on. That's a, a note. It keeps on, you know, dotting the music here and there when it, when it uh, when it all comes together as a medley. We rate here on the matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars. I'm sure everybody can see this coming all the way up 110th Street. Lindsay Ragone, what do you give? I this give this movie? four stars, obviously. I give this a four star. This is the best movie I've seen so far this year. I try not to think too far into the future just because I like to take art as it comes to me. I It would have to be 
an incredible year for it not to show up in my top five. I will say that much. Hey, maybe you hate this movie. I don't know what to do with you if you do, but I'm happy to listen. Um, let me know. Maybe you love this movie and, and there's something about it that we didn't even talk about and you want to talk about with me. Let me know. Ryan at the matinee.ca. Twitter, where I'm matinee underscore CA or facebook.com slash dark matinee. What do you think of John M. Chu's uh, In the Heights? Amazing movie. Check it out. Uh, you can get it on demand. If you're lucky enough to see it in the theater, for the love of God, go. Um, especially because Lindsay and I can't. Um, so please. Uh, we are going to be right back after this. We're going to take a quick break and come back with the other side uh, right after this. And now I'm wide awake A million years too late I talk to you imagining what you do Remembering what we went through We're back. It's Matt and Acast 263. We're at home. I'm talking in person. It's a nice feeling not looking at a screen for once, uh, getting that little bit of extra energy being across the table. Lindsay Rigoni is here talking about musicals. So, of course, it's a happy day for her. We use this part of the podcast to talk about for the reading, double features, um, you know, extended mixes, talking about other movies that could complement the main one. Um, I, there's a lot, really. I kind of feel like there's an obvious jumping off point, but you get the you get the opening volley. What is a film that you think that somebody should go on to or could go on to after John M. Chu's In the Heights? One thing, you told me to have a whole bunch of films. You have as many as you oh, want. Oh, okay. Well, I have two. You have okay. as many as you want. Well, the obvious one, obviously, is going to be West Side Story. Sure. Because it's a musical, because it takes place in the streets of New York, where I'm reluctant to actually recommend that is In the Heights is so much more authentic in terms of casting people, <laughs> like in terms of the casting. Yes. Part of me is reluctant to say like, yes, move on to West Side Story. I love West Side Story. It's one of my favorite films, but yes. I, I kind of almost just wanted to bring it up because of the similarities. And yes, they do nicely go together. However, there will be a big disconnect if you watch them back to back. We have Natalie Wood in kind of brown face. We have um, a lot of brown face in that movie. Like even um, George Shakaris. Right. Even he is darkened. Yes. You know, like that is not his skin tone. Yes. And, and was, even though he, I believe he is. He, he's, well, oh yeah, he's, yeah, he's, he's, he's left. It was just in the day they felt like, oh, they, well, they, they needed to really. We need to really be. So yes. Uh, West Side Story is a great film that kind of coincides with this, but uh, disclaimer there's going to be a disconnect you know it's it's a film we both love um it's mm -hmm. a film we like we've seen screenings of it we we, we have copies it's it's the kind of movie we can like sing like we know all the numbers it's it's a movie that's about to be remade and we we you know you know i'm sure we'll be talking about it on this show but it shows that there is more than one story to tell in terms of musical theater like just because you have already told a story set in lower class Manhattan about, you know, immigrants and working class people doesn't mean that you're done. That's kind of what I love about both productions existing about, uh, you know, somebody like Lin-Manuel Miranda making In the Heights and making a story about his experience, which is still not even the experience. Like this is much more authentic movie than you know, West Side Story, which is just an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, but it is still not everybody's Latinx experience. Yes. You know, 
Um, but I do love that West Side Story exists and shows that these universal age-old tropes can be applied to, at that time, modern-day society. Yes. And I, I will point out, I'm not someone who's like, well, the casting in this wasn't authentic. You shouldn't watch it. I am a believer in you have to accept a movie for the time that it was cre- like accept any piece of art for the time that it was created. Yes. Um, I watch a lot of old films on TV, like a lot of old musicals and there is some hella inappropriate stuff in them. Yeah. And as long as I, I do think you have, like, I don't believe in censoring it. No. Um, but it's teachable. Yeah. And it's, you know, some stuff makes me super uncomfortable when yeah. it comes on screen, but it, and you certainly shouldn't remake that today. Yeah. I believe the heart of that movie transcends. I yes. believe the, the choreography in that movie, the choreography the in that movie is in that movie, unmatched. The, you know, the staging of that movie, I believe, still transcends, aside from its little problematic details. Now, West Side Story has my favorite musical scene for film in the history of film. I think you're talking about Cool? Yes. I think Cool is the best standalone sequence in a musical film because... it's. I think it's the first time I really saw someone understand the medium that they were working in. You have, one, the choreography in that number... It's all about like the tension that these kids are feeling and you, you know, with the pops and the powers and they're, they're trying to break out and they're doing all this in a parking garage with a really low ceiling, Mm -hmm. which is very different from when, if they were on a big grand stage performing this. So taking their emotion and you have these teenagers who are trying to bottle in their feelings and putting them in this really cloth, like actually claustrophobic parking garage and that when they like jump up and do their dances they're practically like hitting the ceiling it's so beautifully shot i think it's just a perfect musical number yeah and it it does something that i think in the heights does as well where it's like we understand the medium of film Mm -hmm. and we're going to use it we're going to tell the story in using all the stuff that we have available and i think for west side story to do it 60 years ago I just think it was genius at the time. I totally agree. I, uh, you know, anytime I get an excuse to watch West Side Story, I, I lose like two hours real quick, and that's not even interesting. My first um, other side selection has no me- well has no musical numbers in it. I was going to say has no music in it. It actually has quite a bit of music in it. Um, I went back to 1989, the first masterpiece out of director Spike Lee, "Do the Right Thing." Uh, set in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. Um, again, really hot day. All in one day. That's the that's the big difference between the two movies. Do the Right Thing all takes place within one day versus In the Heights, which takes place over a few weeks. I think anybody listening to the show has probably seen Do the Right Thing by now. If you haven't, give it a look because holy shit, is this movie prescient again. Um, Spike Lee stars and directs. It is vivacious. It is gloriously photographed there is music thumping throughout the movie like right down to the opening of rosie perez dancing her ass off to fight the power by public enemy that i love this movie that was the other thing i noticed actually with um in the heights is when i talked about how you notice the difference between that first staging of it and how it's adapted now and they're actually a little bit more hyper i do like that uh, hip hop and rap um, is is intensifying as time goes on. Like you listen to Public Enemy and um, NWA and those kinds of like more OG rappers, 
it almost sounds quaint. It's adorable. Yeah, you know, like their 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 rhythm is a much lower BPM than it is now, but you hear it in this. And again, like Public Enemy, it's incredibly intense, incredibly passionate, um, and incredibly pointed in the in the way it's used in this movie. Um, often blaring from Radio Raheem's boombox as he goes from from scene to scene. Both of these movies use New York in the same way. Brooklyn versus Washington Heights. Um, I think that they'd make an amazing double feature. You haven't watched that movie in a while, have you? Not in a long while. It's um, yeah, it, it's it's incredible. It, it's it's very much a snapshot of 1989, like in the in the clothes and in the music and that kind of thing. But it's still, I believe, just the story and the attitudes of it are very 2021. Um, what else you got? Is another other side. I have another obvious one. Okay. Another musical. I'm going to say Rent, um, mainly because Jonathan Larson was such a huge influence on Lin Manuel Miranda. Was he? Oh, he, he's talked about that. I mean, well, Jonathan Larson's like brought musicals back to the next generation. Mm-hmm. You got to remember, Lin-Manuel Miranda is making his directorial debut with the Jonathan Larson That's true. musical. Yeah. Um, tick, tick, boom out later this year, which the trailer looks amazing. Um, It'll be included in the show. And it's another show that takes place in the streets of New York with a community of people trying to support each other. You know, we have amongst ourselves had a lot of discussions and arguments about the film version of Rent. I am, I am still a deep believer in the musical Rent. And that musical was deeply informative to me growing up. Um, that is what I consider like one of my shows. Um, the film is a whole other beast. Um, if a person has never seen a production of it, you know, they, they could do worse I than watching that, that Chris Columbus movie. That movie uses the the city in a very different way than this movie does. And I think it's seeing the two side by side. I feel especially now that the Rent movie is lesser for how it doesn't use New York. I mean, I don't think it, it in the Heights. Yeah, does. I don't think it makes the city feel as alive as in the Heights does. But no. I think that's not so much something I would bash rent for as praise in the Heights for, because in the Heights did it better than I think I've seen other films do. So it's setting, it's kind of setting a standard that we have not have had yet to establish. True. That, that is a good point. What I will say is that rent does a great job of like in the Heights of transcending beyond the stage, because the stage of rent is very ramshackle and sparse. And you kind of got to use your imagination. Well, yeah, now we get like, this one now s- when they sing tango Maureen, we get a freaking tango. tango. Yeah. But I mean, there's this one sculpture that is supposed to be the chimney and the Christmas tree yes. and something else that I'm forgetting. And you kind of got to like tilt your head and squint to understand what it's supposed to be from moment to moment. The movie version of Rent, at least, gets into the subway and gets out into the lot and, you know, goes out into the actual part of New York that is no longer the way it was in Rent. So, okay, I mean, I would say, you know, maybe start with Rent and go up rather than go start with the nights and go down. But that's just me. Um, you have four other sides. So I'm going to give you one more before we go on to my second one. Okay, well, I'm going to go to a non musical now and oh it's, my. it's a film that, yeah i know that's just, just crazy Who are you um, i'm gonna say real woman have curves interesting okay uh 2002 movie based on a play directed by patricia cardoso um i think i've seen you this. have not because i asked you to watch it a few weeks ago because i knew you hadn't seen it oh okay so and I you have... declined i love this film because i love america ferrera like Right. unabashedly i love her i will watch anything that she's in i don't really care what it is but this movie um again it's a group of immigrants 
who uh, they work together, I believe, in like a dress shop um, who can't really afford the dresses that they're making. And these women all kind of stick around together. And I, I, I love like coming of age stories. I love films about like women coming into their own. Okay. And a lot of the film, America Ferreira's family is like, being criticized for her body because she's got you know she's a lovely curvy woman but her mother's always on a diet and trying to get and in ugly betty they describe her as sturdy and i don't well you haven't seen it so i don't know what i should say i don't know keep talking there's there's like this beautiful moment near the end where they work in this just like sweaty hot shop and they're and she finally just like strips off her clothes and it's all women who work there it's all just like the small group of women who work in the shop and she's just working in her bra and underwear and her mother works with her and is mortified because everybody can see her like roles and whatever and she's just like this is what i look like this is and all the women start stripping down and to me it's just such a community like you know they all they all bond over it and to me it's another film where the women supporting each other and this community of of people who are isolated together again working class people yeah like the, again that, that 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 statement of the kind of people who have kept the world running for the last year who are probably having a harder time keeping their lifeblood you know like a dress shop like that i bet you five bucks it's the kind of thing that's gone through at least one generation of, of so it seems more sweatshoppy than a dress i don't want to say dress shop oh, it's more okay. it's not like okay it's more they manufacture dresses. Yeah. I don't want to say a dress shop. It's it's funny because I mean, first of all, you've given me the impetus to really uh, push it up the um, the line. It's based on a play, so there's that connection as well. Um, I like you. I love America Ferrera. I love everything she's she's done. Um, we've you know we mainlined Superstore while we were locked down <laughs> just to prove it. Um, it. It happens to be on demand. So if somebody sees this come up in my letterbox feed, be advised. Um, yeah, I think that that's a, that's a great connection. Um, that I think uh, it would make a fantastic double feature um, in terms in terms of the two. My other uh, other side is a little bit more frivolous, and I just I kind of liked that they were both um, stories set in the same realm. I'm going a little bit downtown to the Bronx. Uh, this is a film we watched last autumn together. Do you remember? vampires versus the bronx the businesses are getting pushed out of the neighborhood oh from last year yeah did you like that film i thought i watched it by myself no i watched it with you it's not great theater but it's got the kid from in the heights in it it does yeah that's another is that your connection that was one of the connections i wanted to find another story that was like from working class new york like from the bronx from washington Heights, like that realm like I, I went with brooklyn with my first one i wanted to get like something from queens or something from the bronx so vampires versus the bronx it's on netflix if people want to see it um it's very much in the style of uh attack the block if people like to attack the block which by the way there's another attack the block coming so awesome um it's not as good it's definitely not as good as attack, <laughs> as the, block. attack the block that's why i'm surprised so you, maybe, said it. <laughs> you know dial down your expectations there but i love it's another movie with I feel like you could just say attack the block for them and then get the same. But that's a London story. Right? Well, yeah, but it's still about, London's... it's still about the community. Yeah, it is. It is but I, I wanted, I, I specifically wanted the Bronx and I did want that kid. It's a fun little movie. And again, it's, it's the kind of thing that's boisterous. That's, that's silly and upbeat and would kind of like leave you with a smile on your face. You know, you, you can get some, some scary stuff without being worried about being scared by, you know, nightmare paralysis. Um, 
It's directed by Oz Rodriguez, written by him and uh, Blaze Hemingway. You know, it's not even all that long. It's like 90 minutes. Um, it's a fun little movie that, that you know, you, as I said, if you want to go a little bit downtown from Washington Heights down to the Bronx, it's, it's, a, it's a great little story that you can add on. You have one more other side. All right. Well, you just said you didn't want a London story. Well, I'm going right to London. All right. And this will be an unexpected one, but I wanted uh, a film about community. Okay. Um, now I'm scared. No, this is, I wanted something that is as good as in the Heights oh, okay. in terms of like, I would give this another four stars. Oh, my and I wanted something that in the Heights has a lot of, there's some creative filmmaking. It's kind of whimsical sometimes. And I don't think any film would be more perfect about the community and the whimsy and following an immigrant who is like new to the area and is accepted by the community than Paddington too. <laughs> show your work. This is, this is I feel reach. like I just did show my work. Uh, pa- mean, in Paddington too, Paddington is an immigrant true. living in London, right. is c- completely accepted by the community and the whole community comes together for him right. just out of love for him. Yeah. And the vibe of that film, the way it's filmed, the way it's colorful, the way it's it's just got um, there's so many like filmmaking flourishes. Yeah. I would say it's just great effing film, and so is in the heights. That is a film like like in the heights. That is a film that trusts itself, its story. Yes. You know, like that has nothing but a deep amount of faith in the material. I I have never read Paddington, um, and you it doesn't it on the shelf. Yeah, uh, but I don't need to. I I can walk into that film and be like, this film is delightful, and it just brought me such a joy. And you don't need to have seen In the Heights or have even heard of Lin Manuel Miranda, and you can watch In the Heights, and you will walk when those credits roll. You are going to feel so freaking happy. Yeah, like you will cry tears of joy and happiness. For both of these films are going to give you the same feeling. This is very very true. If somebody has never, I, I will admit, like when Paddington Two dropped in its year, it dropped in like January. Like, it was a movie that the North American market had, like, no faith in whatsoever. They just dropped it into this dead spot. Critics were kind of, like, losing their mind over it. Yeah. I thought they were just kind of critics being weird. No, they were all completely right because it was a beautiful little story. And, yeah, if somebody hasn't seen it because the other didn't know it was made or whatnot, it's a, an amazing movie. And how many how many recent movies would you say have caused you severe happy cries? <laughs> for real like um, if you just want to feel if, if you just say i want a happy cry what should i put on uh, not nothing recently i would say paddington too yeah and in the heights yeah yeah i totally i totally you definitely that. happy cried at the end of in the heights i definitely did um no, and if you didn't happy cry at the end of paddington too then yeah, you have some emotional yeah, problems i agree so i feel like uh, my connection for those films is mainly the feeling yeah i agree that is episode 263 of the matinee cast I was going to say I'd like to thank Lindsay for dropping by, but... <laughs> hey, I've been sitting at this table for two hours. You should thank me. <laughs> I do thank you for sitting at this table for two hours. Come back on Monday, June 28th for episode 264. I'm not sure what we're going to discuss yet. Perhaps Luca, the new Pixar film. Um, I'm open to suggestions, um, including people who want to come by uh, and talk about a movie. Let me know. Get in touch in the usual avenues. Lindsay, if anyone wants to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? at Lindsay Rigoni, but I'm not very active. So. Oh, well, how about <laughs> but follow me anyway. Why not? All right. My site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them in the usual places, Stitcher, Spotify, Google, Pocket Cast, Blueberry, and some new places. Tune in, Radio Public, CastBox, and Podchaser. 
Everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on In the Heights can be left in the comments section of the site. You can email me, ryan at the matinee.ca. On Twitter, I am matinee underscore CA. And there's always Facebook, facebook.com slash darkmatinee. For Lindsay, I'm Ryan. We'll see you at the matinee. We're not alone tonight.